Hi, I'm Emily Chappell and you're listening to the Wheel Suckers podcast. Today we're talking to Emily Chappell about books, bikes, politics and grief and food and periods and other things. Enjoy. <laughs> the Wheel Suckers podcast is forged in the studios of Wardour in phantasmical Fitzrovia, London. One does not simply record podcasts at Wardour. They also do voiceovers and audiobooks. Let their professional team of engineers, producers and composers be your guide. Visit wardourstudios.co.uk for more. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Alex. I'm your captain. I look after social media marketing and events at Look Mum No Hands, a cycle cafe bar workshop, 49 Old Street, London. And I'm joined by my stoker. It's Jenny Stoken in the back. I'm the director of the London Bike Kitchen. We are a do-it-together workshop located in Hackney. And we teach people how to fix their own bikes through our classes, drop-in sessions, our women and gender variant, and women of colour nights. And we've got a very special guest today. Ah! So tell us who you are and what your Wikipedia summary would say. So I'm Emily Chappell. My Wikipedia summary would probably say she's really into bikes. She used to be a courier. She rides bikes a heck of a lot, very long distances, sometimes racing, most often not, and has written a couple of books about it. Speaking of books, mm-hmm. so your first book, What Goes Around? Yes. And now we have... Where, Where There's a Will. Where There's a Will. Where there's a will, there's an Emily Chapel. <laughs> Would yeah. you like to read a passage from your upcoming book? If you insist. Are you sitting comfortably? I am now. So this is a passage um, that describes my tortured ride at Mont Ventoux three days into my first transcontinental race. So I've just cycled from Belgium. I've done about a thousand kilometres. I haven't slept very much. I'm very, very tired. I am not in a fit state to ride out Mont Ventoux and it's dark. But somehow I'm doing it. Looking down to my left over the nighttime landscape of southern France far below, I told myself I must already have gained over a kilometre in elevation and just for a moment allowed myself to look proudly back on what I had accomplished so far rather than fearfully forward at what was to come. I no longer felt the urge to stop, I discovered, no longer had any sense of beginning or end or of anywhere else I might be. I had become a creature who climbed. There was no room in me for any other impulse, no reason or logic behind it, no sense of destination or reward. My awareness was narrowed to the dark road curling up the mountainside ahead of me, 
the cold moonlight as it fell on the silvery scree slopes around me and the fierce racket of the wind above my head. I knew distantly that my arms and legs were trembling with exhaustion and that I was slightly too cold in my thin cycling jersey, but stopping to put on another layer was beyond me. I remembered what Reinhold Messner had written about his solo ascent of Everest 35 years previously. I can scarcely go on. No despair, no happiness, no anxiety. I have not lost the mastery of my feelings. There are actually no more feelings. I consist only of will. Maybe that was the stage I had reached. No energy left for any thought or feeling apart from the will to go on. I went on. It was all there was to do. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, 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 yeah. You've done this before. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, while I was writing this, I read every part of it aloud, not in all, all in one go, but chapter by chapter. Because with the first book, I noticed when I started to give readings, there were one or two sentences here and there that kind of didn't work when I read them out loud. And I thought, oh, I should have should have figured this out. Mm. So this one, um, I spent quite a lot of time sitting at my desk, just reading out loud to an empty room to check it all worked. And hopefully, when I start to read this book out loud, and there should be an audio book as well, it will all hang together. Oh, amazing. I was going to ask, like, it sounds, it would be perfect for you to read this in your voice with that kind of flow. I hope so. There is an audio book in the works, but uh, we don't yet know if it's going to be me reading it. Oh, come yeah, on. I was going to say, it needs to be you. Thanks. Who would they get to read this? Oh, I don't know. If it couldn't be you, who would you get to? Morgan Freeman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Um, I would be really interested to hear someone else's interpretation of it, but I, I think it should be me. Mm, yeah. Because it's yeah. me. Yeah, true. Agreed. True. In the book, you are riding, racing. In the transcontinental race? Riding, racing, yeah, one of those. <laughs> Existing. Both of those, um, maybe. For listeners that don't know what that is, could you explain the transcontinental? Yes. So the transcontinental um, started in 2013. And the initial idea was very simple. It was just a bunch of people who were into riding a long distance who thought, hey, let's race across Europe. Um, so they did. And it's evolved. Um, but the, the idea is it's a completely self-supported, non-stop ride, race from one part of Europe to another. When I did it, it was Belgium to either Turkey or Greece, but it varies year for year. And you're given a number of checkpoints you have to visit. Apart from that, your route is your own. So it means that there's a lot more kind of skill and strategy than there might be in other races, because as well as trying to go really fast, you're also trying to pick like the flattest road or, you know, the best tailwinds or whatever. Or in my case, the most interesting mountain roads, uh, which is why I uh, didn't do as well as I should have. And yeah, it's a, a small number of people do it um, and they all spread out across the map. And one of the really key things about it is that... Uh, Racers all carry trackers and you can go on the internet and find a map that has all of the racers, all their dots on the map and you can watch it and it is apparently highly addictive. It oh, updates every three minutes. It's a new thing now that people do, isn't it? I, yeah. They actually call themselves dot watchers. Yep. Dot watching is fun. 
Keith, one of my mechanics, did it, and he was just going the wrong way. We just kept <laughs> watching him going the wrong way, and it was the best. We were like, Keith, no, Keith, you idiot, what are you doing? And then when he turned around, we were like, <laughs> we had it on. It looked from your hands actually on the screen. We just, put, oh wow, we put just Keith on the screen. <laughs> I bet he loved that. He didn't know. We didn't tell him. <laughs> Yeah, that's one of those really strange things about it because I, um, during the race, especially the first time I did it, but every time I did it, you get into your own world a lot of the time and it's you on your own for like up to two weeks dealing with the world. You're in this kind of bubble. You're a bit sleep deprived. So, you know, you're, you're in a very particular place. And then at the end, when you go home or sometimes during the race, you suddenly get reminded that I don't know how many, like dozens, hundreds, thousands of people are watching you. Sometimes really obsessively. And when you take a wrong turn, they're watching and they're talking about it on the internet and all of that. And it's a really weird juxtaposition. And there are times where it's really comforting. Like that night on Von 2, I felt incredibly alone having this unique experience. And the next day, I find out that all my loved ones and a million other people had been watching me minute by minute and willing me on. And that was the most heartwarming thing. But then there have been times where, for example, I'd taken a wrong turn or slowed down or just wanted to go off my own for a while and really wished everybody would bugger off and stop watching me. And of course, you can't really do anything about that. Well, you could turn it off, but then people wonder, what's happened to Emily? (laughs) (laughs) They're keeping an eye on you as well, aren't they, all the race organisers? Yeah. So in your book, you describe the actual winning part of these ultra-endurance races as uneventful, as if it was incidental. That's quite a metaphor for life as a journey. But what is it about that hardship that's more important to you than the actual win? Well, I don't think it's hardship. This is one of the things I really wanted to do with the book and may not have succeeded. The narrative around cycling in general and road cycling and this particular sort of racing is this sort of masochistic ideal like you know the glory of pain and hardship and we seek out suffering and all of that and that actually I think is bullshit for me I really am not into pain I think if you're in pain you're doing something wrong I do it because it makes me happy and excited and I feel free and I feel tranquil I feel like I'm most myself I'm having wonderful adventures I'm extending what I thought I was capable of and all of that stuff And as part of this very big kind of tapestry of experience, there are moments of pain and hardship. But I don't get into those moments and think, yes, here comes the pain. I get into those moments and think, okay, right, this sucks, but I know I can get through this. And this is a less negative thing than it could have been because now I don't believe it will stop me. And I enjoy having the tools to deal with this. So pain and hardship are definitely part of it. So when I have difficult periods, there's a bit in the book where I find myself on some unexpected gravel, which is a bit of a theme. And I initially think, oh, shit, gravel. Oh, this is going to ruin everything. Oh, it's going to be really hard. And I've already had a really rough morning. And then it is really hard. But that kind of focuses you And I spent that entire afternoon battling with this gravel in this intense state of concentration. I didn't have much left in the way of energy or resources, but I remember feeling this is this is so hard. I have to put everything into it. I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm not worried about the future or anything. I'm just right here in the moment. 
And towards the end of the afternoon, I was getting really tired and that was kind of slipping away. And I was like, no, hold on, hold on. This is amazing. And that, I guess, you could call hardship, but it made it easier in some paradoxical way. And that's a way more interesting thing to have going on than just like, whoa, pain is awesome. <laughs> Suffering. <laughs> if I can have a pound for every cycling marketing campaign that talks about suffering. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to lead in actually to talk about, uh, you did a talk at Rafa a long time ago. And I remember so strongly you talking about, I'm not sure if it was from this race, when you were going up a hill and you were really struggling. So you decided to think of all the other women that have struggled in history. Is that right? <laughs> and then you use them as a benchmark to be like, I can't, yeah, I'm, maybe I'm remembering it wrong because obviously... It was um, it was not all the women in history who've ever struggled because that would have had to be a very big hill. <laughs> it's quite a big one. <laughs> I'll give them half a second each. Yeah. No, that was uh, from the passage I just read. That was cycling up Von Two. Yeah. Um, and it was a it was an amazing night. It was exactly like I've just described. I was feeling really rough and exhausted. Like definitely no energy left, finished, going to have to stop now. And the hilarity of being expected to cycle up Mont Ventoux when you're in that state. I remember thinking at the time, like, I should have flown out here for a mini break with clean cycling shorts and a hotel to cycle up Mont Ventoux for the first time. What the hell am I doing trying it in this state? And it was just, I knew it was impossible. So I set out to do it nonetheless. And it was... This was one of the most pivotal nights of my life, I think. Um, I still look back on it really fondly, which is bizarre. I started off riding up the the slope, thinking, well, I'm doing this, I've got to do it, but I don't know how I'm going to do it. And I started to cry and just kind of felt myself dissolve and thought, well, this is, this is it, this is it. And then I realised, oh, no, I'm still going, crying, but still going. Um, and then I, I sort of <laughs> dried up a bit and... This kind of this strategy popped into my head fully formed and I had stolen it from a friend. So I have a friend called Hannah Nicklin and she had, um, I think the week before we'd got together because she was doing her first Ironman that day. And she's a much more kind of disciplined and organised person than me. So she'd planned out her entire race and she said for the run, she'd divided it into 20 minute segments and planned what she would think about for every segment. Wow. Uh, I know. Wow. And I thought, well, that's an interesting strategy, <laughs> Hannah. Uh, good luck with that. That's certainly not for me. And then at this point, I changed my mind and thought, that sounds like a great idea. And I don't remember how I came up with this idea. It just kind of came into my head. The climb was 21 kilometres long, which is quite a long way. I knew I couldn't make that, but I thought I can probably do two. So let's divide it into two kilometre segments. And for each of those segments, I will think about a woman who inspires me. And partly, I think, you know, to inspire myself with her strength and try and harness some of it, partly just to distract myself. Because, you know, if you're cycling up a hill and it's hard and you can take your mind off it for even a second, that's great. So I started off with, with Hannah because she'd given me this idea and just thought about, thought about what she'd just done. Like she'd just completed her Ironman and it was amazing. And I was in awe. I've never done an Ironman. I still think they're impossible and I'm impressed by them. And I thought about that. I thought about it all the wisdom she's given me. I thought about the last time I'd seen her. I kind of really scraped the barrel and thought everything I know about her, everything we've, every conversation we've had. And then two kilometres were up. And I thought, hey, I did it. And then I think I thought about Juliana, um, Juliana Boring. She had been in the race and she she just dropped out. And I 
thought, well, she's not using her strength, so I will use it. Um, and the first few kilometres of the mountain, that went really well. And then in the upper reaches, I was so out of it, I couldn't actually hold a thought for that long. So I was just kind of every now and again. Um, it was really windy and dark. And I don't know if you remember uh, when you were a kid watching Fantasia, um, the night on Bear Mountain. Mountain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was exactly like that. I had that music going through my head, and there were all these like the wind and the ghouls and the ghosts yeah, yeah, and the demons it, yeah. flowing through the air, and all these little thoughts would kind of whip past me, and I'd think, oh, oh, that woman, that woman, and think about someone, and think, oh, okay, yes, yes, yeah, I can do it. She could do it, and then carry on. And I thought about people's weakness and how they'd, you know, they'd felt weak, but kept on going. So, oh, this is a nice one. I just. Um, like a couple of months before that, I'd met a girl called Jenny Graham, um, who was just somebody I'd met in a bike event. And she had just dropped out of the Highland Trail in Scotland because the weather had been horrendous. And she had pushed on and kept going for so long. And all the dot watchers had been so amazed by her. And in, in one case, she'd taken 24 hours to cross a river because it was really high because of the rain. So she was, you could see on the tracker, she was going back and forth and trying and then going back because it was too deep. And it was just, it was mind blowing. So everybody, when I met her, I was like, oh my God, you're Jenny Graham. You're that one with the river and the Highland Trail. But to her, she felt like a failure. She hadn't completed it. She'd been really slow. And I thought, wow, so is she She probably felt like a failure and like a loser when she was doing that. And yet she did it. And I think she's a hero. Maybe I can do this. And of course, the postscript to that is that Jenny Graham is now the Jenny Graham yeah. who has yeah. circumnavigated the, the globe. Yeah. Um, Fastest woman, right? Yep. Yeah. So I'm very pleased that she was in there. <laughs> I just thought it was such a inspiring and interesting and maybe, I guess, for me, unusual way of getting up that mountain mm, to like tactic. use the energy of other people mm. but also that you know how do you eat an elephant when you break it up into pieces like breaking up each segment into pieces that is such an interesting fun way of tackling such a huge task yeah and it really works since then you know i came home and of course i wrote a very long self-involved blog post about it and i can't remember exactly where but or exactly who came up with it but a few of us have come up with the phrase the invisible peloton, which is all of these people that you have around you when you're riding. And, you know, sometimes they know they're supporting you, sometimes they don't. But these people that you can you can call on. Um, I love that phrase. That's so nice. Good. Invisible peloton. Yeah. Oh, it's nice. It's like your own team. <laughs> yeah. Your own teammates. And sometimes, you know, somebody I know will be in a, a difficult race or on a difficult bike ride and say could really do with my invisible peloton now and you know you let them know that you're there and that you believe in them and all of that i mean it's in some ways it's such a cheesy concept but it so works and it's powerful mm. you know to support other people and know it's a great visual too. you yeah. yeah it makes something that seems so solo less just about that and yeah. it extends to life as well you know yeah <laughs> we're all here for you're not alone <laughs> you're not alone <laughs> should ask some weird cycling related questions go for it um, this is one I wanted to know. Hallucinations due to sleep deprivation. How does your body react to zero sleep? Have you had hallucinations? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you have to know the hallucination. Exactly. <laughs> Catch 22. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I if I do, they're really boring and I'm just hallucinating like trees and Italian guys on motorbikes and things that could be there anyway. 
as far as I know, I've not had any, which is really disappointing because I think they sound like quite fun and a lot of my friends have really good stories. I think one of the things, the funny things I've noticed happens to me is you lose any sort of buffer that you have between you and your emotions. So whatever emotion you're having, you're just going to have. You don't have the ability to you know, calm it down anymore. But also you don't really have the ability to fight it. So you just think, OK, I'm incredibly manic at the moment. I'm going to sing for 45 minutes and it's great. <laughs> and then an hour later, uh, you think, oh, now I feel like the world is going to end. and I'm going to think bad thoughts about my mother and cry for 45 minutes and then you get that out of your system and then something else comes along and it's, <laughs> it's like tv i mean you don't get bored it's like um, therapy as well it's like you're going getting these things out mm, and yeah so it's it's interesting and i well my theory on that now backed up by having read a little bit about sleep deprivation is that um if you deprive yourself of your i think it's your is it your nrem sleep your brain doesn't have time to kind of take all the stuff that's gone on during the day and kind of file it and contextualise it. So it's all just sitting there. So it is just right there. And I think I use the metaphor in the book of uh, it's like a, libra a library where the librarians are really overworked. So they haven't shelved everything. <laughs> so you've got like everything lying out of the table. You've got comedy next to tragedy and you've got celebrity biography right there next to like physics textbooks. So it's all just mixed up together and uh, you don't have any <laughs> sense of proportion of perspective. I remember one night, I think the third transcontinental I did, I was just, I don't know, getting into my sleeping bag at the top of a mountain pass in... Uh, Austria, I think. And I remember lying down and just a couple of minutes before I fell asleep, I was thinking through where I'd been that day and thinking back to that morning. I'm thinking, no, 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 that's that's ages ago. That must have been two days ago. Uh, no, because so much has happened. And actually feeling quite kind of weirdly anxious and overwhelmed by this. Like, no, 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 that can't be right. That I have no perspective of time. That's too much has gone on. There's too much in my head. That can't have been today, but it must have been because everything adds up. And then I went to sleep. And then when I woke up, I tried to recapture that feeling of overwhelmedness by all the stuff that had happened in that very long day. And I didn't have it anymore because I think I'd slept. My brain had rebooted and done some filing and it was all cool. So it's it's interesting to see what goes on there. It is interesting. I love sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Periods? Why not? That's what I want to know. Like, how do you deal? You touched on an, a pill that you were taking yeah. for your period. So um, I want to talk about this because everybody has to know about this because yeah. uh, for <laughs> some reason a lot of people don't. So, yeah, if you have your period when you're racing, I'm sure it would be manageable. But it's really not convenient. I mean, periods are just very inconvenient. And in my case, not only is it, you know, you have to deal with blood and things, but I feel weak. I feel in pain. My legs feel weak. Um, I feel grumpy and my energy all goes to my womb. It's really not the kind of state you would want to be in when you're in a bike race. So um, I asked my doctor if there was anything I could do about this. And she said, yes, here is a pill. And it's called norethisterone. And I think it is designed specifically just to postpone periods. So it's a hormonal thing. Um, I think if you're actually on a hormonal contraceptive, you can probably run those together and things, but I'm not. So I use this. Yeah, we used to do that. You just keep taking your pack. Yeah, I've yeah. got friends who do that and but, you just keep going. But when you stop, that's when it goes wrong. Because your body's like, oh, here we go. I need to have six <laughs> periods now. <laughs> it's like you thought you could get away with it. <laughs> no, you're just storing it up for the future. Yeah. 
so yeah, Norothistrium was amazing because I think I think almost every race I did coincided with a period about to happen, and I thought, oh, this is no good. So I put it off. You just take a pill three times a day. Three times a day. Um, yep. Yeah. But that's fine because I could space them out really evenly because I was barely sleeping at all. So I took one <laughs> at 6am, one at 2pm and one at 10pm. So every, wow. every eight hours. And it was a really nice little sort of, it punctuated my, my days. Like a ritual. Yeah. Mm. Um, and uh, someone has more recently warned me that apparently if you it, it can make you feel really depressed. And I wonder if that had anything to do with the massive crashes I had after the races. I don't think, I think it was maybe a factor, but you generally have a massive crash after the race. So the norothistrone probably didn't help. Um, no, probably just added an extra mm, little cheeky. Yeah. And then yeah. you Crushing got your bump. period, right? <laughs> yeah, which was oh, yeah. yeah. And was also really tired and grumpy <laughs> and had no perspective. So, I mean, we could have a long discussion about whether whether it's a good idea to put yourself through that. <laughs> but you go from being this kind of superhuman height of your powers, racing nearly 400 kilometres a day, to being this pathetic little creature sitting in an armchair, <laughs> unable to look after herself with every part of her body kind of oozing and flaking and hurting. Yeah. And then you get better, it's fine. Would you do it again? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I figured out the uh, the recovery thing now. I do a big thing every summer, and what you do is you just have a month completely off afterwards, which is a bit hard work. You know, you feel tired for a bit, and you laze around, and then the last week you're like, ah, oh, God, I'm ready to go. I feel really lazy and fat. I should get going. But if you give yourself enough recovery time, then when you get back on it, you've basically still got the form, but you've lost the fatigue. And the month after that, I was on fire. It was amazing. If you get it right, it's really good. <laughs> uh, I wanted to talk yeah. about that you were a courier before, because um, that's what your first book is about. Mm -hmm. And I went to a talk you were at, at Bespoked. Uh, it was with, I can't remember his name now. Julian, Julian. Syrah. Yeah. yeah. That was about basically the correlation between cycle couriers becoming endurance races. Because there's a theory, I don't know how you feel about it, that being a courier just leads you up to being able to do these types of races? Well, that is a theory I have as well. Although most couriers don't go on to do these types of races. There are probably a disproportionate number of racers I've known in the Transcon and other races who have been couriers or still are. So I think it does, it lends itself simply because you cycle more than almost anyone else. Like most people, at least until now, who have entered the Transcon are ordinary people who have jobs and lives and families and commitments and they train around the edges of that and they take their two-week holiday and they do the race. And it's pretty bloody amazing. So Christophe Olegert, who has won, I think, three times, is a Belgian physics teacher. Um, couriers have a bit of an advantage because they're on the bike all the time. So you, you're naturally very fit and strong. And that's never really been a problem for me. You also are used to getting on the bike whether or not you feel like it because you've got to. So if you wake up and, you know, you're feeling a bit under the weather, it's raining, you have a hangover and you have period pains and your knee hurts, you still have to go out. I mean, you could call in sick, but then you won't make any money. So that, I think, helps. You know, you, you gain a certain amount of endurance from that. And you're used to just keeping going no matter what's happening in um, any weather yeah 
pretty much. <laughs> I mean, you still moan about it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> but that helps. But I do think that's really interesting that it's like teaches you that. It's like training. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Want to get into ultra endurance? Go be a cycle courier. Well, I've never really trained. And whenever I say that, people kind of look at me as, yeah, right. And I, I haven't deliberately trained, but I've the things I've done in my life have led me to do the other things I've done because I've ended up, well, basically being really, really fit and strong and slightly addicted to cycling. So it wasn't that couriering was training for long distance touring. It was that once I'd done couriering for a while, I thought, well, what else can I do that will keep up this level of kind of happiness and cycling and challenge? Because I seem to always want a bigger challenge, hence why I ended up racing. How has the scene changed then, the ultra-endurance scene? Because you started, when was your first one, 2016? 2015. 2015. And by then, that was the third Transcon? Yeah. So now it's still going. It's now on number it's the seventh. seventh. Yeah, this was the seventh. Mm. Um, and it's already, it's sh- something shifted, hasn't it? Yeah, I think that was always going to happen. So when, when it first started, and the Transcon was the original or one of the original ultra-distance self-supported races. Before that, you had, for example, RAM, which is the race across America, which has been going for, I think, 30 or 40 years. Yeah, that is hardcore. And it's... But it's supported, isn't it? Very, You're very supported. A support car. Yeah, for listeners yeah. who don't know, Race Across America is a supported race across one, basically one side of America to the other. Yeah. <laughs> and that's still crazy. A, still, yeah, and like you have a team that basically keeps you alive. Yes. <laughs> That's because, um, yeah, Shu Pillinger, shout out to her, but I've spoken to her a few times about it. And she said, they're just, you have a van behind you just keeping you awake. Yes. I was support crew when Juliana did it. Um, so I've seen it up close and I've spoken to Shu about it at length. And I have quite a lot of opinions on, well, I have a strong opinion that I think doing it supported is less safe than doing mm. it self supported. Because when I was supporting Juliana, she's on a bike in front of your car how can you tell when she's about to fall off her bike and fall asleep um you just don't know and your job is to keep her going even when she says no please let me stop and sleep you're always making that decision does she actually need to stop or do we need to crack the whip Mm. and it's difficult to anticipate someone else's needs and also the racer relies on the crew because that's Mm. the idea but i think relying on someone else to make your decisions for you is fundamentally flawed and even when you're, you know, you're very prepared and you know your crew really well, I'm, I'm not comfortable with it. Whereas when you're self-supported, I mean, you're capable of making very stupid decisions. <laughs> but I think, you know, you always keep a certain amount of your brain spare and your energy spare for dealing with where am I going to sleep? When am I going to sleep? Do I need to sleep now? How much food do I have? Where is my next food coming from? What sort of food do I need? Because if you go too far and you're not able to look after yourself, that's it. You're out. No one is going to pick you up. So not relying on anyone else, I think, gives you a much greater responsibility for your own race, your own safety and well-being. And I feel much, much safer knowing that I am on top of it. And if I'm not on top of it, then I have to anticipate that and stop and rest and There are really, really long debates to be had about the comparative safety of, for example, RAM, self-supported ultra racing, professional road cycling, where a lot of people die and are injured, so also clearly not very safe. And I think 
all of them have flaws. All of them you occasionally think, is this really a safe and responsible thing to be doing with myself? But I prefer self-supported ultra racing because at least I have full responsibility over what I'm doing, how I'm doing it and whether I stop. There's a lot to unpack with that, I think. But yeah, back to Jenny's question, I guess. How do you feel, I guess, if we just focus on self-supported because that's what you've done. And even just the transcon itself, because yeah. that's kind of the most well-known ultra-endurance yeah. race. It's kind of the flagship event. Yeah. Um, so it started off, it was founded by Mike Hall in 2013, um, the year after he um, unofficially set the, the round the world record. And it was initially a bunch of ultra-distance. Um, well, I don't think we even called it ultra-distance back then. It was a, a bunch of people who liked to cycle really long distances who set off from London to cycle to Istanbul via, I think it was two checkpoints in the early days, just for a laugh. I'm minimising it slightly. I don't think it was just for a laugh. But it was it was a pretty low-key, seat-of-the-pants thing. And it rapidly grew because I think it tapped into an interest that was already there, clearly. And so um, by the time I did it, I think the first year there were 30 people, the second year slightly more. And the time I did it, I think there were over 100 the first time and everyone was saying, oh my God, it's got so big. Of course, now it's like 250 or something. So it's got gradually more and more well-known, which means it's had to be more and more organised. And it's become slightly more commercial, though it's still a pretty low-key operation because there are the, the principles of, you know, it's as self-supported as possible. Um, but the interesting thing I'm noticing now is that a lot of the, most of the people who did it originally have sort of moved on because the, the type of race it is and the type of racer who does it has evolved, which is totally cool. This is a thing that happens when a new sporting discipline takes hold. It starts off just as like a bunch of people get together and do it. And then things inevitably become formalised because they sort of have to. And what's really interesting now is that there are more and more former professional cyclists coming into self-supported racing. So, for example, Emma Pooley recently won the further race. Sounds like she had the time of her life. Molly Weaver has just announced she's going to be going over into uh, long-distance self-supported racing, which is going to be really fun to watch. You've got Lachlan Morton, who is a current pro racer with EF, who won GB Duro this year. And also, these guys are all winning the races, which is cool. Um, but it also, like, I would not win the Transcon if I entered. Now, I would not be the first woman. I would, I would be somewhere in the mid-pack. It has changed. And for example, Fiona Kolbinger, who won overall which we're all delighted it's about, amazing. And, yeah. which I have been predicting <laughs> for years, Legend. didn't know it would be her, <laughs> very pleased. Um, I spoke to her last week and she is a completely different, she's not a completely different cyclist from me because she loves cycling. It makes her really happy. That's just her doing her thing and that I can completely relate to. But she is really into the numbers and planning and preparation and being meticulous and precise. And I asked her what goes on in her head when she's um, riding along. And in my case, what goes on in my head is, oh, my God, everything and anything and memories and fantasies and thinking about everyone I know and passing the time and entertaining myself. And she said, oh, no, I just think about numbers. You know, I think about how far it is to where I'm going and how far I've done today and what average speed I need to maintain and all of this and just lose myself in the numbers which uh, I sort of wish I could do sometimes. I'm kind of an anti-numbers cyclist. 
but people like this are now um are now winning the races and it has changed i think the way it does it it's becoming more professionalized which is fun to watch and there's i think if i still wanted to race there would be a little element of mourning that oh you know the thing i loved has now evolved and i'm less part of it but i've moved on and i'm doing things that make me happy so i just look at it and think it's really interesting to see how it's growing up it's like watching someone you knew as a toddler growing up into like an 11 year old and having opinions and you think wow the difficult adolescent phase may be coming (laughs) yeah but interestingly transcontinental have done like a pyrenees Mm. race now and they're kind of creating new mini offshoot versions i think we're at an interesting point where a lot more of these races are going to crop up in areas all around the world we're going to that will be peak, smaller kind of peak endurance. It's just going to be so many. I think the calendar is just going to yeah. really fill up. Well, it's good for a start because um, I think the final year I did the Transcon, um, I did a couple, a couple of other races as well and realised that we need other races because otherwise everybody would want to do the Transcon. And already, uh, I don't know how many people apply. I think it's over a thousand for maybe 200, 250 places. So a lot of people will be disappointed. So we need other races. Yeah, And also you know, is diversity quite the right word? I mean, you need a lot of different things because there are a lot of different people with different needs and interests. And racing is catering a lot more to that now. I'd like to mention, so Juliana, who I mentioned before, has just um, started a race, which I think is taking place, which I know is taking place the weekend of my book launch, because she will not be coming. That's fine. It's totally cool. I don't have a problem with that at all. <laughs> no problem, Juliana. Yeah. Hi, Juliana. <laughs> but the the race she set up is really interesting, um, partly because she's called it a sprint, even though it's like multiple days of cycling. Uh, but it's sprint's a good word. Yeah, it's a relatively short race compared to some of the other ones. Um, Sounds harder. I know. I think so. I mean, it's still hundreds of kilometres, and it's in southern Italy. And the beautiful idea behind this is that the the money that the race makes is going back into local communities. So they're looking to support like local up-and-coming ecotourism projects and things like that and actually pay some meaningful attention to the... The surroundings. Yeah, and the areas they pass through, which is something that I think a lot of people who've done these races think about because you you do appreciate the places you pass through. It's amazing. You also think, I'm passing through this place very fast. I'm not having very long chats with anyone. I wonder what's going on here. And is our presence here irrelevant or detrimental or helpful? We don't really know. And this is a race that is actually thinking carefully about that and trying to make it um, as beneficial to the local communities as it is enjoyable or challenging to the races. And I'm really excited to see this happening and to see where that might go. I'm really happy to hear that. That's kind of one of my own personal issues with kind of the whole bike packing scene is and ultra endurance like races is how kind of Western culture again is going into developing third I hate that term as well, third world, whatever and but into countries where people are poor and they can't leave and you can just dip in and out and and to see people be able to give back to then that environment that they're kind of taking advantage of, um, I'm really happy to hear that. Yeah. I think that's a great plan. I think that the politics of it are really interesting because the, I think it was 2016, the year I, I won the Transcon, that was a year where I think the 
refugee migration was suddenly a really big thing. And I think a few races were saying, oh, I hope we can get across the borders. And I was thinking, <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I mean, I was thinking that and also thinking it kind I'm of lucky. jars with me that I probably will get across the borders yeah. and that I might be waiting there with people who will have more trouble or people who are travelling for a very different reason. And what I do is being glorified and what they do, which is much more hard and worthwhile and challenging and important is being minimized and that's vilified well yeah by many people Mm -hmm. so you think about that and i think in the way it's developed for me in in the earlier days it felt like this is a celebration of the fact that we (laughs) we have free movement and we are able to enjoy this beautiful continent and the transcontinental and you know the people who ride it have to some extent paid a lot of attention to the the history of the places they're passing through you know there's been substantial acknowledgement of the the Balkan war and all of the areas you know because because the reason Europe is so interesting is because it's had a lot of wars and tussles and the borders have changed a lot and uh, you know this is why we have all of these incredible gravel roads in the western alps because it was heavily militarized so it's it is tricky to know exactly how to approach that. You I really appreciate that now we have these roads which were started for a very solemn purpose and now they can be something that we enjoy and appreciate. You shouldn't, I think, ever do that without acknowledging why they're there and what an awful time you know, how many people died um in the earlier days. Like a lot of the best roads in the world were built under militaristic dictators and you know several people died for every mile that was built i don't really know what we do with that i mean do we stay away from the roads do we ride them and weep do we ride them and repent do we i don't know it's something that i keep thinking about but now it's evolving a bit more because it might be that races end up changing because our ability to move across borders changes and that is that's a bit chilling. And this year, the, the, the Tour de France was affected by climate change. And that's something people have been talking about a lot. And it could be that all of these races and our ability to ride our bikes is affected by other you know, historical currents that we're part of. And I don't know, there's, there's quite a lot there mm-hmm. to think about. Um, and I think going back to what, what you said, it is, it does trouble me that we do recreationally what a lot of people can't and <sighs> I don't know it has it's changed the way I do things slightly I, I do a lot less flying around now think global act local considering all these kind of heavy issues then it's like well what can I do yeah. and like minimizing our environmental impact but also I think the idea of appreciating the roads that we're on and the people that made them and the history of the towns we go through. And I think that's really important for people to remember. So I appreciate you bringing that up. And it is also, I think, important to travel, at least to some extent. So my long bike rides across continents are what have made me realise that the world is an incredibly good, kind place most of the time and that people are kind and wonderful and that you have something in common with and can connect with almost anyone, no matter where they are and who they are 
and what country they're in or what religion they follow or anything. And that I, I'm so glad I have that. That's one of the things that affects how I approach the world and how I view current events and all of that. And if it gets to the stage where we all have to stay in our own countries and not travel, I mean, that's that's terrible. That's where things start to go wrong. So I think we have to think about the responsibility of travelling, both in terms of we should do it, we have to encounter other people, we have to realise that we all have a lot in common, but perhaps we should be more mindful about the ways in which we do it. Well said. I agree. <laughs> we'll talk about it another time. Not now, but I just I always want to bang out about being able to take bikes on trains. It's like my new biggest oh. pet hate. Except oh, for that the tweet. picture yesterday. The tweet yesterday. Oh, that Scotland, was like a, oh. is it Scotland Rail. Oh, yeah. that was a wet dream. Yeah. <laughs> oh. I'll put a, yeah. if we keep this in. I'll put a link below. Yeah. But um, Scottish it's Rail beautiful. Yeah. Company oh. posted a picture of their new dedicated bike carriage, and it was just like, oh, oh, oh I've been waiting for this. I've been, been waiting, waiting for this. <laughs> <laughs> if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A good portion of your book, um, I was surprised because I thought your book was going to be just transcon, that's it. And then reading it, there, a lot of it is about grief and uh, talking about your friendship with Mike Hall for those of you who don't know, uh, could you tell us about him? And uh, I mean, he was he was sadly killed riding the Indian Pacific wheel race in 2017. So that's two years ago now. Um, but, you know, how has his death affected your riding? 
I guess, should we say who he is for listeners that don't know? Yeah. Um, I think probably everybody already knows. Um, don't assume. But, don't assume. <laughs> yeah. So Mike was, uh, he was the founder of the Transcontinental and I first became aware of him in 2012 when he set the the unofficial round the world record and he did think it was 18,000 miles in 91 days. So he averaged just under 200 miles a day. And at the time I was riding across Asia. So I was on a long distance bike tour and I just had to race through China to beat a visa deadline doing like 100 miles a day. And it was the hardest thing I'd ever done. And I'd heard about this guy called, what was his name? Mike Hall. Yes. And he had done this thing. And I was just, I was blown away by the thought that somebody could cycle 200 miles a day for three months. And I had this thing of thinking, well, that's that's beyond me, clearly. I can currently do 100 miles a day for 11 days and I'm completely fucked. But by that point, I knew that things I think are impossible sometimes later turn out to be possible. So I sort of looked at it in that way. And I was quite kind of captivated by, you know, the idea of what this man had done. And I eventually met him and um, found out we had a lot more in common than I'd expected. And I think one of the currents in the book is of me just assuming that he would be this kind of unattainable hero and then very belatedly realising, no, we're really similar. Uh, we should probably be mates. So he um, he moved to Wales where I was living not that long before he died and we started riding together and got on really well. And uh, And then he died and it was really, really um, sad, she said eloquently. And how it affected the book was really interesting because we had, we used to go on rides and then sit in coffee shops and have ideas and plan all these projects we were going to do. And he was planning a book about the transcon and he'd thought about writing some sort of memoir. And I was like, yes, you totally should. And we talked about this book. I had this book in mind even then. I knew I wanted to write about this sort of racing. And we discussed that. And of course, if he was still around, it would be a very different sort of book. And he would have been part of the writing it and probably would have come and rescued me from my desk sometimes. And we would have discussed it on rides and all of that. And I was really looking forward to that. And I hadn't yet signed the contract when he died and had a few months, I think, of, uh, you know, it all kind of flew apart because in some ways he had been the one holding it together. And then, um, you know, the the dust settled. I think it took me 18 months to get over the the initial crying every day thing. But I reluctantly realised that this was now um, a chapter of the book that, you know, he, he had given me a plot I really did not want to write, but this was now a story. And this could be a much longer uh, discussion, really, because I I agonised all the way through the writing process over what to write about him, about all of it, whether to write it and all of that. Um, and I still, I think I'm just about over it now. And one of the things I realised was that after he died, he was really famous and everybody had a story about this. Everybody grieved. Everybody, you know, they turned him into a fucking hashtag. And I found that really hard to watch. It felt like he'd been not only taken away from me, but taken away from me and turned into a hashtag, among many other things. And everybody was just telling me this story about my friend when I was still 
hoping that he'd come back. And so I wanted to <laughs> selfishly just tell my story, I guess. And maybe maybe it was completely selfishly just about resting back some control over the story. Certainly a bit of it must have been that. But also to give another version of him that wasn't this kind of, you know, this hero because he was a hero and everyone has now turned him into this messiah figure. And people are always saying, oh, you know, well, for this moment, I have a quote from the great Mike Hall. He said this, and it's usually a great quote and really appropriate and it's brilliant. Um, And I know his mum is really happy that, or maybe happy is the wrong word, but really, really feels good about the fact that he touched so many people's lives. But I wanted to talk about the fact that, you know, he was a bit rubbish sometimes and <laughs> had trouble getting out of bed in the morning and uh, he was uh, had a weakness for chocolate cake and uh, got on well with my parents' cat and, you know, all the things that make us love the people we love because you don't love someone for being a hero, you love them for being interesting and having human flaws. So I think it was, it was partly that, and well, and and a lot more besides. Well, I thought it was quite beautiful, actually. It was really difficult to read. Now I'm going to start tearing. <laughs> uh, it was just you made him human, you know, and I think that was your goal. Sorry, <laughs> for the benefit of the listener, Jenny just made me cry. <laughs> well, he was fucking human, um, so. But it's great. I wanted I think, to keep that. I think keeping that in the book was great. Yeah. Thank you. Are we all going to cry now? We're all going to cry now. <laughs> uh, God. I've really yeah, signed myself up for this. Sorry. <laughs> I should keep a tally of how many times oh. I cry at events. This is number one. Okay. Let's talk the about cry zone. <laughs> the cry zone. Welcome to the cry zone. It's okay. Um, Chapatite. The Chapatite. That's a hashtag. <laughs> what have oh. I done to myself? <laughs> it's my own hashtag, though. I made it That's up myself. <laughs> For those who don't know, could you explain it as a noun? I don't know if I can give you a fluent dictionary definition, but, uh, well, it was. It started out just as a random hashtag I put in a Twitter post once. And as with a few random comments I've made, I suddenly realised I'd become known by it. I wasn't too keen on this. <laughs> so <clears throat> I think that, uh, so basically, chapatite, chapel, appetite, because I like to eat a lot. And when I'm on rides, obviously, you know, you need to eat a lot. So the typical thing is, you know, I'll be partway through a race and I'll stop and eat five pieces of cake and put a photo on the internet and hashtag it chapatite and uh, the crowd goes wild. <laughs> they love it they, they love do it. you have like two full-size pizzas and you're like yep. yeah it's like <laughs> i had just been on the bike for about 10 days <laughs> i needed it's those allowed. pizzas yeah i have uh, i have mixed feelings about it because i quite enjoy it and my family have realized that actually we all have chapatite we are a family <laughs> with very large appetites so it's become a bit of a family thing like you know the chapatite we're coming around be ready <laughs> Um, <laughs> yes. So it's 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 funny. Um, and much as I complain about being known by it, you know, I'll complain, and then two hours later, you know, I'll go have You'll some do cake. A post, yeah. <laughs> um, 
but I think uh, I'm I'm a bit embarrassed by how much I'm known for like you know, the amount of cake I eat, and it's partly because, for for example, when you're on a race, for me. I think the the main thing about being in a race is the road, the bike, the horizon, the views. It's amazing. But when I'm seeing all that stuff, I'm too busy riding and I can't be asked to stop and take a photo and tweet it all. It's when I stop in a cafe that I'm a bit bored and I've got a few minutes. So, you know, the obvious thing to do is post a picture of what I'm eating. So that becomes, I think, for the viewer, a much bigger part of the experience than it actually is. And also, I really, I'm actually really embarrassed that people think I eat nothing but cake. It's just that I tweet nothing but cake. <laughs> and this does sound like, oh, the lady doth protest too much. But um, I eat a hell of a lot of salad and fresh fruit. Like my, <laughs> I do. Like my my, my daily diet is, is... The thing is, my daily diet, if I posted that, I would look like one of those wellness twats. So I really... I would rather look like a we, cake we addict. We want to see than, cake. Yeah. And we want to believe you're a cake addict. Yeah. Okay, yeah, we're you living hate it, we you. know it's not okay. true. Okay, yeah. right. Okay. <laughs> we wish we could eat five pieces of cake at once. I, I can't actually, I did try once. <laughs> no, just, just no, don't listen to Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. We yes. could go and do that later. <laughs> There's a really interesting internet phenomenon, as I think it's Korean, it's called mukbang, but it's where people just eat large amounts of food and you can just watch them. <laughs> That's uh, it. That's another but I'm just, that's income a little stream. Like, you know, you could get into that. You should that. get into making no, your own YouTube a channel. Bank no, no. <laughs> I love it. I watch it. Actually, great. I could get my whole family to do that. That would yes. be... Yes! Oh, my God. My brother can eat even more than me. Wow. Yeah. It's scary. He could make money. He could be making money. He could be he making He could be having a Patreon and some fans and some... <laughs> you know, just an idea. That's a really good idea. I'll let him know. <laughs> The other final one is people on Twitch, you can just watch them eat so that when you're eating, you don't feel alone. Mm. So people like eat a sandwich and then you can eat your sandwich. <laughs> Pretend you're eating it with someone else. This is <laughs> our culture really sad. Very sad. I also watch that. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like eating alone. Yeah, I was it's just thinking the that. food. I'm like, yes, this yeah, is my communing. moment. Sometimes yeah. I want to watch someone And it's one of the loveliest bits of a bike ride. Like, I, I, I don't ride to eat. A lot of people joke, oh, yeah, you know, we only ride so we can eat the cake. Um, I absolutely love riding. But one of the many parts of that I love is, you know, you ride for a few hours and then you stop and have a really nice meal. And it might not even be that nice a meal, but it tastes nice because you're so hungry. And then you get on your bike and go again. And I've now realised that is my happiest way of spending a day. So um, my birthday um, habit now is I go on a very long bike ride, usually on my own, and have a couple of meal breaks and come home and feel really happy. That's just, that's the core of it. You know, I'm not racing anymore. I will always want to ride my bike all day and eat nice food and look at mountains. What better thing could you do with yourself? It's the best. That's why we did the um, cafe run uh, look on your hands where we linked up with Jiro Cafe mm. and we made the special cap that like captured the route but not the route you had to take you could take any route you want and the whole concept was ride your bike we did it you know and then go and have we some cake lost. yeah we had cake like <laughs> I just feel like that really pinpoints why cycling is so much fun mm. is that you know you do something you kind of wear yourself out then you just sit there and treat yourself and it feels yeah. amazing and then you go and do the thing again and then you mm. do it again for another 400k <laughs> yeah maybe not that much but yeah <laughs> So, race, gender, disability, how do we get more underrepresented groups into the cycling realm? 
Well, first of all, I think I would problematize the question by saying, why are you asking me this? Because um, I'm probably don't have the answers. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a minor minority. I'm like a gay white female. That's, you know, I'm quite shallow in the great ocean of diversity and representation. So my first obvious advice would be listen to people, you know, ask them what they think and listen meaningfully to their answers and also just listen. So I've learned a heck of a lot by following people on Twitter and listening to the conversations they're having with each other and just shutting up and letting my opinion be adjusted where it needs to be. And that, I think, is one of the first and most obvious like bedrock steps that everybody needs to take. Because it's sort of, you know, you open up windows into other people's worlds and think, ah, maybe this wasn't all okay. I mean, I may be short on meaningful solutions, but representation, I mean, it's it's a buzzword, but it's really, really important. And not just as a sort of, you know, throw a few people of colour in there and then it's all okay. You've got to think about who you're getting involved and how and where and what role they play and what influence they have. I, I think a lot of, you know, businesses and organisations and everything have the best of intentions, but they don't really know what they're doing. So they'll recruit accordingly. And then I think what can often happen is that you end up with a few minority people, you know, somewhere in the bottom echelon of the business and they think, phew, okay, we're looking good. And then a year or two later, they kind of slide out because it really wasn't working for them. And actually that just hasn't worked. It's much, much harder than that. And I, I, you know, I notice the problems. I don't think I always have the solutions. I think a lot of people are now working on this and more people should be. You need to find a way of creating space that is comfortable and is safe to inhabit. So you don't, for example, if you're a cycling business, you don't recruit people into it and then effectively put them in an environment where they have to fight their corner the whole time because that's a bit shit. So you've got to be able to listen and be willing to change. So having people in leadership roles is a heck of a lot better. And I mean, it's well documented that having a diversity in leadership just makes it better for everyone and, you know, identifies and then solves all the problems that a exclusively white male leadership board would not. I've been thinking a lot lately about mentorship because it's something that I feel I've never quite had enough of. There's all these little and big things that I wish I had some kind of slightly senior figure who was a few years ahead of me that I could just phone up and say, what about this then? What should I do here? How does this work? How much money should I be asking for? And all of that stuff. And I've had a couple of people um, approach me. In fact, I get a lot of people approaching me and asking for, you know, advice and all sorts of stuff like that. And I always try to do as much as I can or to pass them on to someone else who can help because this is kind of how it works. And, you know, over the last few years, some of them now are also you know, not leaders in the field, but, you know, are prominent, confident people in the field who are helping to bring other people up. And that is something you can do. Um, and that's something I'm trying more and more to both to make myself available um, for and to to listen to other people who are, you know, everybody has something to teach and something to learn. And uh, that is something I've I've realised is very important. And then things as well, like sharing the platform that you have so I have a bit of a platform now I realize and you know we bang on about here I'm an imposter I don't deserve to be here but you know it appears I am so I might as well use it for good 
So I try, probably not hard enough and probably not regularly enough, to make sure that I invite other people onto this platform with me and support, you know, projects and people that I believe in. Particularly, you know, if I'm invited to do something or, you know, whatever, speaking gig or something, and either I can't do it or I think I'm not the best person for it, suggest other people. That's like the most obvious thing. And sometimes even say, well, I'd kind of like to do this, but I know she would be way better and more relevant. This is not all about me. I will be fine if I don't do this. The world will be a better place if this person does. I I had a conversation recently with um, Alistair Humphreys, who's a sort of prominent white male adventurer. And um, every now and again, somebody will mention on his social media, oh, you know, Al, I love the stuff you do, but I couldn't do it because I'm a woman. And his standard response is, yes, you could. Here's a list of women, including Emily Chappell and many, many others who are doing this kind of thing. And I think that is a great response. And we had this chat and he also has a lot of opinions on why women feel like this and, you know, whether they should feel like this and all of this, but wisely keeps them to himself because it's kind of not his discussion to have. He's doing exactly the right thing by saying, you need to talk to these people. They'll sort you out. So recognising when you are and are not the person to have the conversation and being open to the people who are, whoever they, they might be. And then also we need to keep having the conversation because the spaces and our needs evolve. So one analogy I use, which hopefully will make sense, is uh, the dyke bars in London. So when I first moved here in 2005, I think if I tried, I could name 11 lesbian bars that used to exist, you know, from Stokey down to Kennington, there were loads. I went out a bit more in those days and they have all gone now, which in some ways was really, really sad. And I do wish there was still like gay bars I could go to and be surrounded by like-minded women. However, I think one of the main reasons they've gone is that they're not really needed anymore because we can just go to the pub with our girlfriends like anyone else and it's not a big deal. So there's this moment, I think, and I think you you get this with protected spaces um, everywhere, like they are needed. And at the moment in cycling, we need women-only space. We need space for people of colour, especially women of colour. We need space for many different minorities, and that needs to be protected. However, there will be a time where some people who've been using that space think, oh, do you know what, I just want to hang out and be one of the human race now, I don't think I need this so much. And there will be a moment where before some people are ready for it, maybe maybe the space will kind of fizzle out or be closed down. And we have to be alert to that because we also don't want to end up, you know, I love riding with women only. And it's brilliant. I love women-only events. I run a lot of them. However, I really don't want to always do women-only events. So it's knowing as well, being alert to how, how things change, how the world changes around you and how the space needs to change. And, and that being led by the right people, not uh, the wrong people. Beautiful. Yeah. Wow. Well said. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, we still we got some kickback I think oh, on Twitter about the women of color cycling group saying Why? and let me guess was it not women of color mm. exactly back <laughs> and oh yeah shocking about saying that. like why are you discriminating based on race and I'm like oh, oh my god okay mm. I shouldn't have to educate you but here we go and I just I pointed him 
um, towards a podcast episode of Hidden Brain about mm. uh, positive discrimination and how it can actually be quite good. Um, and But like you said, it's not – it's a stopgap measure. Um, mm. And once people get comfortable being in areas where they're not generally accepted, then the, they will start to – everyone will just start to integrate normally. Yeah. And we won't need those segregated spaces. But, you know, you got to – you got to create that stepping stone. And have the same conversations again and again and yeah. again, yeah. which is why we need a lot of us, because every now and then again, someone burns out and just can't be asked to have the conversation again. So we need a few of us yeah. to exactly. yeah. share so the load. Exactly. take the torch, yeah, because yeah, we're all just... Who wants to do it this time? <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh, it's a shame. No, no, no. It's good. It we're is, doing well. Yeah. It's a struggle. Keep going. Keep going. It's like cycling up Von too. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, we would like to plug that we can come and meet you and buy a signed copy of your book at yeah. Look Mum No Hands. And it's hardback. Ooh. It is fucking sexy. <laughs> Does it smell good? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yes. It looks really nice. And it's going to be for sale. Discounted price of £10. Ooh. Is that right? Something like that, yeah. And it's usually Don't hold us to that. Oh. Yeah, prices and uh, <laughs> details are subject to change. <laughs> It'll cost however much we feel like selling it yeah. for on the night. And I may or may not sign it, but I probably will. As I think long as... in the spirit of who you are, uh, you've invited other people that have written bike books to join you on the night. That's yes. a celebration of not just you, but other people. So you are joined by... I will be joined by... Such a good group of people. Oh, my goodness. So we have uh, Jules Walker, who is just ace. We've got Kat Young-Nickel, who is also ace. And we've got Max Leonard. Um, and they are all just brilliant writers and doing such interesting things. So I have one of my many ready rants is that if you talk about cycling books, most people, most people's idea of a cycling book is kind of like man wins race. And if you look at all the lists of top cycling books, it's pretty much just like Eddie Merckx wins race, Tom Simpson dies, um, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas there are so many more interesting stories than that. I mean, my book is pretty much woman wins race. So perhaps we should ignore that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, th there are so many much more interesting stories being told about and via cycling. And really, I was hoping to have about 50 or 60 writers at my book launch because I really want to say, look how amazing this is. Look how many people are here. Look how many writers there are producing really interesting stuff. Look at this incredible community we have. Please also buy their books. They are available to sign them. Please join us for the launch of Emily's book on Friday, the 8th of November at Look Mum No Hands. I will put a link below. There will be beer and bikes and books. Yeah, mm. it's going to be great. I'm glad it's a Friday. I've got Saturday off, baby. Yeah. I can buy everybody's books and buy all the booze. <laughs> that sounds like a great weekend. Yeah, it's going to be good. I'm going to wake up surrounded by books and a hangover. <laughs> what happened? <sighs> oh, so much knowledge. <laughs> what else do you have coming up? People always ask me this and people say, oh, so what's your next race? Uh, like racing is over. Uh, racing was a minor blip, done, completed, written the book. You know, that's that's... That's it now. So I don't think I'll race anymore. One of the current things I'm doing, which I absolutely love and is quite different from what I've been doing before, is I lead a group of people around the Tour de France route every summer, one week before the the pros go at it. 
and it's a great big charity thing. People pay a reasonable amount of money to do it and then have to raise money for charity as well. And they do every single stage of the Tour de France, full length. Takes them a little bit longer than it does, you know, Egan Bernal. And I get to be there while they're doing it. It's very supported. We have uh, four food stops every day. We have mechanics. We stay in hotels. It's also as exhausting as the transcontinental in a slightly different way. And it's just so much fun. It's called Le Loop, if anybody's interested. I think we still have some spaces left for next year. That's a plug. And honestly, the route of the Tour de France, I didn't realise it was so good. I thought it was going to be one of these things where it looks great from a helicopter, but you're mostly just going along busy roads. It's amazing. The places they take you to and the the way the stages are designed as really nice bike rides, as well as just like, you know, spectator fests. And of course, you get to go up all of the coals. And this year, there's so many new climbs that we've not done. They're actually, they're staying away from all, like Alp d'Huez isn't in it, Ventoux's not in it, Galibier's not in it, Tourmalet's not in it. Instead, there's uh, there's all sorts of niche, interesting, hipster new climbs. Yeah. <laughs> New hipster clothes. <laughs> Get in there. Fans Get there next year. Yeah. Dude, Tourmalet is so last year. Oh my God. <laughs> Babe, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> and I will be going around the country promoting the book during November. So I'm going to be trying to cycle as much of it as possible. And I'm going to be in a very long list of places that I won't even try to remember now. But you can I've find them, them on yeah, my website. them on the website. So yeah. if you can't make it to look, Mum, that's fine. Yeah, I'll get around. Thank you so much, Emily. Thanks, Emily. Thank That's you. great. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. If you like what we do, squish that like button, rate us on iTunes, and subscribe. If you can't give us your money, give, give us your stars. Don't keep us a secret. Slam that share button and tell all your podcast listening and perhaps also cycling friends about our show. Bye. Bye. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 